Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the precious gift it is to have your word. Lord, we thank you that we have brothers and sisters in Christ that we can gather together with to read your word and to look at what it is saying to us today. Lord, we pray that your Holy Spirit may be working in us so that we are able to discern what it is you have for us, what you would have us do with our lives. And Lord, we pray that what we learn this morning may indeed point us more to your Son, Jesus Christ, than ever before as we love and adore him and look forward to meeting him one day in heaven. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, have you ever had that experience where someone is crying and then somebody else cries simply because the other person is crying? I first experienced this uh, recently. Well, I think I've seen it uh, to some extent earlier in life, but I really noticed it uh, when I was meeting up with my sister and her family and... I have this little niece who's two years of age and we were out for lunch and Joshua was up upset about something. He was crying and I was trying to deal with that and he was really upset. I think it was to do with he wasn't getting a toy that he wanted and so I was dealing with that and next thing you know, my little niece, Caitlin, is crying as well and I was like, what's wrong with her? And it turns out she just cries whenever anybody else cries. And she just burst into tears. She just couldn't stand the fact that Joshua was crying. And so she was weeping in response to the fact that he was weeping. And I think we recognize this ourselves. When someone is crying, it does sober us. It does help us uh, to, uh, to realize the gravity of the situation for that person and can help us reflect on our own situation as well. And that's what we're going to be looking at this morning with the book of Ezra. We've been slowly working through the book of Ezra and we've come to Ezra chapter 10 and verses 1 and 2, which is what we'll be looking at this morning. If you've got a black church Bible, I encourage you to have it open to page 470 so you can follow along as we look at these two verses in detail. Uh, what has happened up to this point? Where does this chapter fall in the Old Testament history? Well, I'll give a brief recap of what's happened up to this point. Basically, you can start the Bible with Genesis chapter 1 which is where the Bible does start, and there's a, God creates the world and he creates two, men, uh, two people, Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve have some children, and from those children you eventually get this guy called Abraham. Abraham then has a grandson who becomes Israel and has, the, uh, has 12 sons who become the 12 tribes of Israel. Those uh, 12 tribes, they end up moving to Egypt where Pharaoh persecutes them quite heavily, and eventually they are let go by Pharaoh out into the desert and then make their way to the Promised Land. They live in the Promised Land for a number of centuries until basically they sin an awful lot and God says that's enough. He destroys most of them but a remnant remains and that remnant is taken by King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon to live in Babylon. They live there for a period of time and then they're allowed to return from Babylon back to Israel. And that is what Ezra opens up with. King Cyrus allows some Israelites to return to Israel in one wave and then a second wave comes under Ezra. Ezra comes himself uh, towards the end of the book of Ezra. Ezra chapter 8, he returns to Jerusalem and then he finds out that the Israelites have been committing a grievous sin which is marrying people who are non-Israelites. So Israelite men have been marrying women who are from foreign nations. Now it's not as though, as we've looked at this in the past, it's not as though God is against interracial marriage. He is against intermarriage where it is 
between different religions where people who are Jews are marrying people of false religions and then being influenced by those who are following false gods. And so when we looked at chapter 9, it is all about Ezra's prayer of confession of what the people have been doing in marrying these foreign women. And so we looked at that prayer in great detail and how Ezra is mourning over the fact that the Israelites have sinned so grievously against God by marrying people that they shouldn't have married. And that's where Ezra chapter 10 picks up in verse 1. We see a recap as to what Ezra has been doing, and that's in verse 1. It says, While Ezra was praying and confessing, weeping and throwing himself down before the house of God. That's a description of what's going on in Ezra chapter 9. Ezra is praying, confessing, weeping, and throwing himself down before the house of God. And then something happens. Two things happen as a result of Ezra's mourning over sin. And the first thing that we notice that happens is that the individual sorrow of Ezra for sin leads to corporate sorrow. I have two main points this morning that on the back of the church bulletin if you want to follow along. And the first is that individual sorrow for sin leads to corporate sorrow. As Ezra is praying, confessing, weeping and throwing himself down before the house of God, something happens. And we read that in verse 1. It says, While Ezra was praying and confessing, weeping and throwing himself down before the house of God, a large crowd of Israelites, men, women and children, gathered around him. They too wept bitterly. As Ezra is mourning over sin here, other Israelites come up, see what he is doing, and they start to mourn bitterly over the sin of the Israelites as well. We see it's men, women, and even children are affected by Ezra being sorrowful for the sin of the Israelites. One person starts crying and the rest start crying too as they see that person torn up by sin. And this is an important principle that we should learn. As we see one person being repentant of their sin, this can often lead to other people being repentant of their sin too. When one person takes sin very seriously, other people start to take sin very seriously too. And that is a principle that applies to today as well. Just like the Israelites were torn up by sin, uh, the seriousness of sin as they saw Ezra, mourning over sin, we too can see that happening today as well. As one person considers sin and reacts violently to it, which is what Ezra did, it doesn't say it in verse 1 there, but when we looked at it in chapter 9, he even tore hair from his head and from his beard because he was so upset about the sin of the Israelites. As we react violently to our sin, other people go, oh, well, it must be serious. And they, in turn, react violently to it as well. They start to weep bitterly for our sin, for their sin. And so, like Ezra, you should take sin seriously. Not just for your own benefit, that this will lead you to be uh, one of God's people as you repent of your sin. You should also react to sin so that other people react as well. As you show how serious sin is in your life, one of the great benefits of it is that other people around you will also take note of what you're doing 
and can be convicted of their sin and take it seriously too. You should also look for church leaders who are going to take sin seriously as well. If you're looking for a church, then you want a church who has someone like Ezra in charge, someone who takes sin very seriously, so that when your church leaders recognise sin in the community or sin in themselves, they react to it, and then you in turn are led to react too and weep bitterly for your sin as your leaders weep bitterly for sin too. It's a wonderful result that happens from Ezra's reaction to this sin here. It doesn't just stay with him, that he's the only one upset. Other people are upset as well. And that's what we should be looking for in a church community as well. When someone sins, is there only one person who's upset about it? Or do many people get upset too? So that's the first result of Ezra's sorrow for sin. It leads other people to be sorrowful too. What is another result of Ezra's sorrow for sin? Well, that brings me to my second main point this morning. Individual sorrow for sin leads to corporate hope. Individual sorrow for sin leads to corporate hope. While everyone is mourning over the sin of the Israelites here in verse 1 of Ezra chapter 10, we see someone speak up. And this person is Shechaniah, son of Jehiel, a descendant of Elam. He has something to say, and we see that in verse 2. Look with me at verse 2 of Ezra chapter 10, page 470 of the Black Church Bibles. Then Shechaniah, son of Jehiel, one of the descendants of Elam, said to Ezra, We have been unfaithful to our God by marrying a foreign women from the peoples around us. But in spite of this, there is still hope for Israel. Shechaniah says two things, basically. He says, firstly, we have sinned. He acknowledges the sin of the people. He doesn't deny the sin. That he says, oh no, intermarriage is not that big a deal. Let's, let's move on from this. Ezra, you guys, settle down. It's not that big a deal. He doesn't say that. No. He says in verse 2, we have been unfaithful to our God by marrying foreign women from the peoples around us. But he also has something else to say. What is that? But in spite of this, there is still hope for Israel. Shechaniah raises the issue of hope, that hope is available for Israel. Now, what is hope? What does it mean to hope for something? Well, hope is optimism about the future. Hope is not the reality that we experience. Hope is something in the future, and it's an optimistic view of the future that something good will happen in the future instead of something bad. So we can hope for lots of things. We can hope that uh, we'll get nice birthday presents uh, when our birthday comes up, which is something that's very much on my mind at the moment because our our son is about to have a birthday in a couple of weeks' time. He's always hoping for more presents and us to tell us what his presents will be. He's got lots of hopes about his birthday party. And that's what we think of when we hope for something. We're thinking of something good that is to come. And Shechaniah is saying there is hope for Israel. What is the hope for Israel? The hope for Israel is that they will not be destroyed because of their sin. As we looked at that prayer in Ezra chapter 9 of Ezra, he was saying again and again that God will has destroyed them in the past for what they have done and he's worried that they will be destroyed in the future. Turn back with me to Ezra chapter 9. Well, no, you have to turn the page. It's just a few verses up. Ezra chapter 9, verse 13. Ezra chapter 9, verse 
13, it says, What has happened to us is a result of our evil deeds and our great guilt, and yet our God, you have punished us less than our sins have deserved and have given us a remnant like this. They are a remnant because of their sins being punished. Then verse 14, Shall we again break your commands and intermarry with the peoples who commit such detestable practices? Would you not be angry enough with us to destroy us, leaving us no remnant or survivor? O Lord God of Israel, you are righteous. We are left this day as a remnant. Here we are before you in our guilt, though because of it not one of us can stand in your presence. Shechaniah has heard this prayer and he's heard what Ezra says in verse 14, Shall we again break your commands and intermarry with the peoples who commit such detestable practices? Would you not be angry enough with us to destroy us, leaving us no remnant or survivor? In the past, their intermarriages led to a remnant. Many people were destroyed, but there was a remnant there. But now Ezra's worried that their sin will make God so angry that they will be completely destroyed and there will be no remnant, no survivor left in Israel. But Shechaniah hears this and he says, there is hope for Israel. Surely there is hope for Israel even though we have not sinned. Why should Shechaniah take such hope? Why should he speak up in the midst of this assembly of all these people weeping about their sin? After all, you would expect that Shechaniah may not be the kind of person that would speak up at this point, given what we know about him. I think it would have been very difficult for Shechaniah to speak up at this point. Why would I say that? Well, interestingly, Shechaniah's relatives were involved in this sin. Shechaniah's relatives were involved in this sin. Who is Shechaniah? Verse 2 tells us, Then Shechaniah, son of Jehiel, one of the descendants of Elam, said to Ezra, and then so forth, Look with me then to verse 18, verse 18 of chapter 10. Among the descendants of the priests, the following had married foreign women. So now, from verse 18 on, we're getting a list of all those who had married foreign women. And it starts with the priests. And then it goes on to verse 25, and among the other Israelites, and then it gives us a list. And look at verse 26. Verse 26 of Ezra chapter 10, from the descendants of Elam. Elam. Where is Shechaniah from? He's one of the descendants of Elam. And here we have listed people who had married foreign women. So when Shechaniah stands up and says, we've done wrong, we've been unfaithful to our God, he is actually condemning his potentially uncles for what they have done, for his relatives for what they have done. He's a descendant of Elam along with these other people. And not only that... But it looks like in verse 26, unless the name ran in the family, that his own father had married a foreign woman. Verse 26, from the descendants of Elam, Mataniah, Zechariah, Jehiel, Abdi, Jeremoth, and Elijah. Who is Shechaniah's father according to verse 2? Then Shechaniah, son of Jehiel. Verse 26, Jehiel is there in verse 26. It is possible that Shechaniah's own father had married a woman from a different nation. I wouldn't be inclined to say that it was his own mum who was a woman from uh, uh, his uh, that his his uh, there was a woman from another nation, because of course that would mean his expulsion later on, and uh, and that would be quite a severe thing. I would say that this is a second marriage, 
of his father if it is his father who is caught up in this sin. But nonetheless, it, we have to recognise that this would have been difficult for Shechaniah to do, to stand up and condemn even his own relatives, let alone his father, by saying we have been unfaithful to our God. And then we have to recognise that Shechaniah, he's not a leader of the community either. He's not, a, he's not Ezra, he's not a priest, he's not a Levite, because the priests and Levites are listed in verses 18 and following and 23 and following. He's part of the other Israelites. He's not one of the people who is meant to be respected in the community as a spiritual leader. He's just some other person. Yet he speaks up in the midst of this, even though it's difficult to do so. Why would he do that? Why would he speak up? Well, it's because he has hope in God. He knows something about God. He knows that God does not punish as our sins deserve. And he knows that God in the past has not punished intermarriage with total destruction. Look with me back to Ezra chapter 9 verse 8, where Ezra is going through what God has done in the past. Ezra chapter 9 verse 8, it says, But now for a brief moment, the Lord our God has been gracious in leaving us a remnant and giving us a firm place in his sanctuary. And so our God gives light to our eyes and a little relief in our bondage. Though we are slaves, our God has not deserted us in our bondage. He has shown us kindness in the sight of the kings of Persia. He has granted us new life to rebuild the house of our God and repair its ruins. And he has given us a wall of protection in Judah and Jerusalem. Shechaniah, I'm sure, is focused on the fact that God has been gracious in the past. And so now he can expect that there is hope for Israel. If God has been gracious in the past, then he may be gracious to us today. Even though we sinned by intermarriage in the past and God was gracious, we have sinned today with intermarriage and God can be gracious again. And we have to remember that God is still our God. It's interesting how he describes God there in verse 2. It says, when he speaks, it says, we have been unfaithful to our God. He still sees God as his God, even though they have been unfaithful and deserve to be removed from God's presence for their sin. He sees God as his God and can take hope. Now the question then remains for us today, is there hope for us in the midst of our sins? When we confess our sin, when we are repentant of our sin individually and then we see other people being torn up about sin as well and mourning bitterly for their sin, can we take hope like Shechaniah did? Should we remember that there is hope for us today? Well, I think we do have a place for hope today, even as we are mourning over our sins. And it may not be that the message of hope comes from those who are spiritual leaders in the community. It is interesting in that prayer of Ezra, there is no real hope given. Yes, he does talk about the grace of God, but at the end, how does he finish? Verse 15, O Lord God of Israel, you are righteous. We are left this day as a remnant. Here we are before you in our guilt, though because of it not one of us can stand in your presence. Full stop. And then it's Shechaniah that stands up and says, Remember to hope. Remember that there is hope for Israel. And so there is a place for people in a community as they're mourning over sin to raise the issue of God's grace and to remind people that there is hope for us even though we are sinners, even though we have sinned grievously against God in lots of different ways. 
There is hope for us today. I even had an experience of this uh, recently. I often in my sermons I do focus on sin and the judgment to come. I believe that that's what the Bible teaches quite strongly and so often the passages I preach on it just comes up and I speak about the sin of the community around us in Australia, throughout the world and of us ourselves. Someone recently said, but you've got to remember the grace of God as well. You've got to remember that there's hope for us. And I think it was a helpful thing for me to hear because as I talked to this person, this person was saying, but Joel, you've got to understand lots people people know they're sinners. They need to hear about the grace of God. They're, they're torn up by sin. They need to hear about the grace of God. And I said, well, yeah, are they? And this person said, yeah, in my life they are. I've, I've seen them. They, they know they're sinners. They need to hear about God's grace. I was like, well, my experience is a bit different. I live in Dremoyne, not the suburb that this person lives in. I live here, and people are just not interested in God. They are when it comes to talking about sin, they don't think that sin is actually a part of their lives. They aren't convicted by sin at all. And so one of the reasons I think I talk about sin a lot is because I'm always surrounded by people who aren't interested in the subject of sin at all. They don't think they're sinners. And then I have friends, I have an atheist friend that many of you know about that I, I, I'm witnessing to, and I spoke to him recently about what heaven will be like. And one of the things that I said I'm really looking forward to about heaven is the fact that I will no longer sin, that when I get to heaven there will be no more sin, that I will be blocked from sinning and I just want to stop all the sin that I commit. And that's what I'm really excited about heaven. There's many things about heaven that I'm excited about, but that's one of the great things because I see sin just rearing its ugly head in my life again and again and again. And I said this to my atheist friend, And he said, if that's what heaven is like, I don't want any part of it. He said, sin is a part of me. The desires that I have that you call sin, they are part of who I am. And if I am taken to heaven and that part of me is surgically removed some way so that I cannot sin anymore, then I am no longer who I am. And I don't want that. I want to be me. Basically, he likes the idea of heaven where he can go there, sin as much as he like, and it's still you know, uh, bliss and there's no pain, there's no suffering, and he can just enjoy to sin. And these are the kinds of people that I seem to come across, people who aren't convicted by sin at all. And so then, of course, I seem to make a fairly strong stance on sin and I'm upset by their sin and I keep telling them about their sin and I want to see people respond the way that people do here When I'm upset about their sin, I want them to be upset too. But instead I don't see that reaction. But I do think we still have to remember to hope. And I think that was helpful of this member to bring this to my attention, that we've got to remember that there is hope even in the midst of sin. We can become unbalanced in our theology if we focus too much on sin and we don't have a Shekinah to come along and say, But there is hope for Israel. There is hope even as we are sinners. What is the hope that we have? Well, it's similar to the hope that the Israelites had. It is a hope that we will not be destroyed because of our sin. We have this hope told to us 
in the New Testament that we do deserve to be punished for our sins, but instead we will not be punished. Titus 1 verse 2, Paul says, We have the hope of eternal life which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time. We have a hope of eternal life. Instead of eternal destruction, we have hope of eternal life. And Romans 8.22 speaks about this hope as well. Romans 8.22, I encourage you to flip with me to page 1119. 1119. Romans 8, verse 22. Romans 8, verse 22, it says, We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what he already has? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. What is our hope? What's given to us at the end of verse 23. We wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Instead of us being destroyed for our sins, our bodies will be redeemed. And this is what we hope for. Now, how is such a hope possible? How can we say that we can be redeemed from sin when we know very well that we should be punished for our sin? Well, that's because our hope is tied up with the man Jesus Christ. Jesus is our hope. And that's what 1 Timothy 1 verse 1 says. It actually calls Christ Jesus our hope. How does Jesus tie in with our hope? Well, it's because he has redeemed us from sin that so we can have eternal life if we believe in him. If we trust in Jesus Christ, he redeems us from our sin and the destruction that we deserve and gives us eternal life instead. And that's in that passage that we just had read for us before from Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2, page 1182, flip with me there as well. Titus chapter 2, verse 11. Titus chapter 2, verse 11, page 1182. It says, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age. While we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. Jesus Christ has given himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do good. Why can we hope for eternal life instead of eternal destruction? It's because Jesus Christ has taken that eternal destruction for us. When Jesus Christ died on the cross, he died the death that we deserve. He was destroyed at the cross in our place. He experienced hell for us so that we could go free. And that is the Christian hope. That is that what we believe. And we need to make that message of hope known as well. We need 
Ezra's and we need Shechaniah's. We need Ezra's to remind us about how serious sin is so that people will mourn over their sin. But we also need Shechaniah's to speak up and say there is hope even despite the fact we have sinned against the Almighty God. Ezra shows us that we should weep about our sin. Shechaniah shows us that we need to take hope even in the midst of sin. And so you should be an Ezra and you should be a Shechaniah as well. If that's what people need, then that's what we need to be. Sometimes you need to be an Ezra and speak about sin and how serious it is, how God destroys those who rebel against him. But sometimes you also need to be a Shechaniah and speak about the hope that we have, that Jesus Christ has taken that destruction that we deserve for sin so that we can live forever with him. When should you be an Ezra? When should you be a Shechaniah? Well, that requires a lot of wisdom in your personal situation and prayer as to what you should say in any given situation with those around you. But basically, if someone doesn't think much of their sin, then you need to speak about that sin with them. You need to show how serious sin is in your own life and mourn over it so that they respond by mourning too. Even children respond in Ezra chapter 10 verse 2. But if they're caught in their sin and they realise that they are sinners, then that's when you need to remind them of the grace of God that there is hope because Jesus Christ has come into this world and died in our place. So do you mourn over your sin? And do you see other people mourning over sin because they have seen how serious sin is to you? Do you take hope as you recognise that you're a sinner and recognise that Jesus Christ has taken the destruction that you deserve. Do you also speak up like Shechaniah does and tell people to take hope? Or do you keep such hope to yourself? It's a terrible thing if people are around us and they're caught in sin and you don't remind them of that fact and then you don't remind them of the fact that there is this hope that we have. I encourage you to be an Ezra but also be a Shechaniah and tell people about the hope that we have, which is Jesus Christ himself and the redemption of our bodies from the grave. Let us come before our God in prayer. Let us speak with him now. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you have revealed in your word how serious sin is in your eyes, that we deserve to be eternally destroyed for rebellion against you. Lord, we thank you that you have convicted us about this sin. And Lord, we thank you, though, that you also give us a hope in Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you that you sent him into this world to die the death that we deserve so that we could live eternally rather than be destroyed. And so, Lord, we pray that we may make this hope known to those around us. And we pray that we may see person after person around us responding with mourning to sin, but also taking hope in you, the great God that you are. 
And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.